0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The State of Us. Beyond mainstream cable news and party lines, with a millennial and a boomer, The State of Us pushes past the noise and uncovers all the issues that matter.
1: Here's your host, Justin T.
2: Weller. The good book, the book of books, or as many of us have come to know it, the Bible. Religious, not religious, or somewhere in between, we all have preconceptions about the Bible. What is it? Who is it for? And how to use it? During this episode, we're going to look at the best-selling book of all time and examine how it came to be. Regardless of your background, you can benefit from this exploration of the Bible's history. Today, we're fortunate to get to speak with the author of multiple books on the subject and a renowned religious scholar, Timothy Beal is a professor of religion at Case Western Reserve University, has authored numerous books, and has devoted his life to gaining and sharing a better understanding of the Bible. Tim, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, Justin. Glad to be talking with you. And of course, we couldn't begin this critical conversation without...
0: True Chat senior historian and an educator of more than 30 years. Here is your friendly redneck
1: liberal, Lance Jackson.
3: Tim, thank you so much for taking the time today to join us and discuss your book. I enjoyed it very much.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Lance. I love redneck liberals. <laughs>
2: thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, let's let's get started here. Tim, your book is entitled The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. For some, this title might spark interest, but for others particularly those who feel they have a firm understanding of the Bible, they might be skeptical about reading your book. They might even think you're an atheist. So why should anyone, religious or otherwise, listen to our conversation today and consider reading your book? Thanks. Um, you know, I
1: I worry about that title, the rise and fall of the Bible. Um, in fact, I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Bible basher. I actually love the Bible, love biblical literature. I've spent 25 years uh, teaching in a secular college about it uh, to a diverse range of students, religious, -religious, non-religious, anti-religious, who all Love engaging it and interpreting it together. I teach Sunday school. I'm married to a Presbyterian minister, so no, I'm not. A, I'm not an enemy of the Bible. I'm afraid that that title sounds like it, though. And you know, the publisher, uh, their their biggest book on the subject of religion before mine was Richard Dawkins' "The God Delusion," and I think that. They were not really in that market niche uh, that could publish books for people who are religious or who have religious questions, and so that title kind of sounds iconoclastic. So this book really is. I want this book to be for two different kinds of audiences on the, or, and sometimes the same person is both audiences. One is uh, folks who are thinking about how. The Bible might be changing in this media revolution that we're in the middle of. We're looking at the end of print book culture and the rise of digital network culture, or however you want to describe that. And, you know, the Bible has been kind of the flagship of print book culture, like you said, it's the book of books, right? And so, how is the Bible going to change after the book? You kind of touched on this in the, the first part of your answer, and that is,
3: where is society today with the Bible? Part of that is then this the publishing industry, and even the the massive amount of money that is made off of publishing um, the Bible and contemporaries of the Bible, things that go along with it. So um, how big is this money making machine? And, and what do you think it does mean for the future of the Bible? I mean, you mentioned, you know, uh, different ways that we can now get our reading material. So where, where do we see where do you see this going? And, and how big is it actually?
1: it's really big. It's crazy. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, thousands and thousands of different things being sold as the Bible in every kind of format with every kind of content you can possibly imagine. I talk about it in the book as evangelical capitalism, kind of uh, conceived, I think, by the publishers as this happy marriage between uh, moving product and spreading the word. Um, but I think that... In fact, I mean, if you stop and think about the fact that the Bible business is doing so well selling print Bibles in this time when print books generally are in huge decline in sales, you know, what is going on with that? And I, I think that it's a kind of last gasp for the print Bible publishing business. They're sort of flooding the market with all kinds of different things, all being sold as the Bible to the point where... It's just kind of being diluted into a lot of different things. And so, you know, actually, if I'd had my druthers, I would have wanted to title the book uh, The End of the Word as We Know It, because I think it's the end of the word as we know it. A certain idea of the Bible is sort of being sold out. But I think that's a good thing because it's an opportunity for me. It's an opportunity to rediscover the Bible in a way that's actually truer to its history, Truer to its content.
3: So, how does this idea that, like, I'm looking over at, at, uh, you know, I think I think of at home in my bookshelf, and I've got six different versions of this book we call the Bible. You know, the King James version, and the New American Standard, and uh, the Way, and the Living Bible, and how does that all fit into this? And why? Why do you think that is psychologically that every time there's a new quote, it's not a version, but interpretation, I guess. Why is it that we go after, why do we feel the need to go get something else when we already have it at our fingertips or have had it at our fingertips for a long time? And then when I read the book, second part of this is, did I read where like there's graphic novels because I'm also back in the classroom with English. So like graphic novels for young people to, to try to reach out and grasp them in the, in the word.
1: Yeah. Well, there's there's graphic novels, mangas, Bible zines, you know, everything and anything. And, you know, oftentimes there's way more content brought in through little text boxes and call outs and so forth that has nothing to do with actually biblical texts that are, that are part of those. You know, the, I think the, the statistic is that the average Christian household has something like nine Bibles, so you're a little behind, Lance. You know, you might. I I haven't bought one in a long time, but um, yeah, I need I need to go out and get caught up on the latest editions. And so, but nine, but you know, the goal of the industry is you know a few more a year. But you you asked about the psychology of that, and I think that's huge. I think that there is for many of us a real disconnect between on the one hand the idea we have of the bible what we think the bible is what people tell us the bible is and on the other hand what we experience when we actually try to crack it open and read it and so on the one hand we have this idea of the bible and a lot of preachers and teachers will will tell you this is right that the bible is this kind of the book that god wrote right it's a it's this reliable, practical book of answers that has everything you need to know to live your life. And it explains it all in very clear, straightforward ways, in familiar language. It's comprehensive. It's all you need. And it's it's sort of definitive, right? Um, and then you go and you crack it open because you have a question, and what you find are more questions. What you find are contradictions where, you know, you, you, you find uh, one text in the, in the Bible saying one thing and another text actually arguing with it and saying the complete opposite in some cases. So it's not, it doesn't, in your experience, it doesn't pan out as a book of answers. Um, and so I think the Bible business really preys on that. Um, basically telling you, well, you just haven't gotten the right Bible yet. This is the one that's going to finally give you that experience you've been looking for of, you know, this this book that's like a blueprint for your life that God wrote to you almost, and, you know, you're finally going to get there. I, I, we might talk about this later, but I want to say in the book that part of the way forward, the more hopeful way of of engaging the Bible is not as a book of answers, but as a library of questions.
2: Expectations versus reality is I think what comes to mind uh, because so many people, as you've pointed out, uh, not really of their own fault, it's what they've been taught, what they grew up with, uh, what everybody has reinforced for them. And in many ways, what the Bible publishing industry itself reinforces is this notion that, well, you're just not reading it right, you know, or, or you just don't understand. Um, when in reality, a lot of people are reading it and they're actually understanding perfectly that they're being posed other questions, you know, or they're coming up with their own questions and that that's not necessarily wrong. But we've all, we've all been, uh, you know, taught kind of that that is, that that's the way, condition that that's the way that we have to look at it. We've been talking with Timothy Beale, author of Rise and Fall of the Bible, about society's current understanding of the Bible. But the question still remains, how did we get here? What is the history that brought us to now? And what did early Christians, including Jesus, read? To find out, keep it here on The State of Us, and we'll be right back.
4: That's chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BTW, Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: We are the state of us. Here's your host, Justin T. Weller.
2: The book of books. We're speaking with Timothy Beal, a professor of religion at Case Western Reserve University, about the Bible and our understanding of it. Next, we are looking at the history that brought us to now. In chapter
3: five, Um, You tried to help us understand how early Christians would have worshiped, and uh, you kind of asked the question, uh, quote, what would Jesus have read? So what would he have read, and how does that inform us of our understanding of early Christianity?
1: It's a great question. Yeah, I want a little bracelet that says WWJR. Instead of JD, <laughs> What would Jesus do? There be? you go. What I like is, that.
3: <laughs> Maybe we can go into business together. We
1: can, <laughs> Sounds good. We can, um, we can patent that we, and put it out. <laughs> we we have a great opportunity to ask that question um, with regard to a particular text in the Bible. In Luke 4, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, there is a scene where Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And he's at, and and at at one point in it, he stands up to read scripture and he reads from Isaiah. And then he sits down and there's a famous, you know, exchange between him and his local hometown, former friends. Um, But it's interesting that that is, in fact, the earliest written record of a synagogue service. Um, coming from the first century CE. That is in Judaism, in Christianity, or in any other context. But what was Jesus doing when Jesus stood up to read in that story? Well, he um, it, it was a scroll that he was reading from, And if you think about how a scroll works, like it was a scroll of Isaiah, right? Because he reads from Isaiah, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, et cetera. Um, uh, The Isaiah scroll written on sheepskins, maybe goatskins, would have been tens of feet long unrolled, over 30 feet long unrolled. So he didn't like with a book, you know, a print book, you could flip to Isaiah, you know, a certain chapter in Isaiah, and you'd be fine. And you could just, you, so you could be picking your own text, right? But he's he's dealing with this cumbersome scroll, it might have been sitting on a table or something like that. And it probably was already opened to the part that he was going to read from, because it would be hard to go and find that place in scripture yourself on a scroll, right? But this this large scroll made out of skin, handwritten, uh, it wasn't part of a Bible. It wasn't Jesus standing there with a whole big Bible in front of him because there was no such thing as a Bible as like a big fat print book. There were scrolls and each scroll was for a separate text Isaiah scroll Jeremiah scroll Samuel scroll Genesis scroll right and these were in a probably in a basket or a box or something somewhere in the room and there wasn't like a single Thing that held them all together. Maybe there was an Isaiah scroll and a Joel scroll and a couple others. Maybe that's all that synagogue had. So there was no Bible as in a Bible book, but there also was no canon in the sense of the, uh, of a kind of closed official collection of texts. And that definitely was true for the early Christians. There was no you know, every early Christian church didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the letters of Paul, and the book of Revelation. They might have had a few of those. And they probably had other ones that aren't, that we don't even know about anymore. But they certainly had other ones that didn't make it into our Christian Bible now. So no canon, no book. There was no centralized Christianity or Judaism to kind of control these things. There were loose networks of religious communities who were sharing hand-copied things. So there's all of that. And then get this, how would Jesus have read that Isaiah scroll? Well, we know that the way people read literature and certainly the way Jewish communities read their scriptures in the first century was that they canted them, that is, they sang them. So Jesus would have sung that text that we read in Luke 4. Um, he would have canted it in this kind of melodic way. If you've ever been to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah or another uh, Jewish worship service, you will know how this sounds. It's the same way that Muslim imams read scripture as well. So that's what how
2: Jesus would have read that. Part of understanding why that's the case is it just wasn't, I mean, it's physically impossible at that date, right? For such a book as the Bible to exist, because you spend some time in your book talking about there were no books like we think of. Um, So it, it would not only would it be um, unlikely, but it would be impractical and impossible to have a closed canon of all these scrolls because, I mean, you'd be talking about a single scroll that would have been hundreds of feet or more long and probably have weighed as much as a person. You know, right? Yeah.
1: exactly. No, that's really important to understand. And you know, the media technology of the of the book, even a handwritten book. Um, which we call a codex um, in that ancient cultural context, that media technology did not really develop to the point where it could hold even several biblical books in one bound volume until uh, the 300s common era, right? So three centuries after Jesus, three to four centuries after uh, Jesus and the early church. And I would argue that the invention of the codex made it possible for there to be a closed canon, like an official list of what's in and what's out of scripture. There was no media technology available to do that before. And you have to ask whether the media
2: sort of led the way to that rather than vice versa. So despite that for the first several hundred years of Christianity, there was not a single bound canon of scripture, mainly because it was physically impossible, early believers were no less faithful than modern Christians. In fact, one might argue that early Christians' faith was even stronger than ours is today. How is this?
1: For one thing, you're talking about Christianity as a minority movement, Um, a minority movement that probably at least at some points was, you know, not welcome and not encouraged by the Roman Empire. It's not until 325 or the early part of the fourth century that Constantine makes Christianity, you know, um, the imperial religion, the religion of the Roman state. And all of a sudden, religion is sort of, you know, Christianity is is the the, is the the official religion of the empire but before that that's not true so being a minority uh religious movement i think is something for those of us who are christians to be thinking about how are we maybe moving into a context like that now where uh, in some ways, we could say we live in a post-Christian world now, um, and uh, what does it mean to be a Christian in a post-Christian world? But I think also in relation to scripture, as you were just talking, Justin, you it was open. It was alive. It was unfixed. Um Interpretation was everywhere and it was up to these communities to be engaging these texts and making meaning from them. It wasn't like someone was telling them what it had to mean in the, in the way that many of us feel now. So I think that that is an empowering way to um, engage scripture. I think it's an, it's, it's a kind of empowerment that I would really like to see in our own communities. You brought up earlier Uh, right before the break that a lot of times people reading scriptures have questions that they feel like, Oh, that can't be the right. That can't be a good question. I must be missing something because my minister or whoever says that's just unorthodox. It's not biblical. I want to say, if you have a question, if you're reading one of these texts and you have a question and you can point to where that question shows up in the text, then it's a good question with my students I never, I want to always remind them that what they say or how they interpret or the questions they raise, it doesn't matter whether they sound orthodox or not. Um, it matters whether they are grounded in this text. I think that's empowering. If we can let people just ask the questions that are kind of jumping off the page, rather than us feeling like we need to suppress them. And. And, and, and censor ourselves because that sounds wrong.
2: Would it be safe to say that that faith was personal and communal more so than it is today?
1: Certainly more communal and um, and communally engaged and alive.
3: Yeah, you give that example um, in the book where I, I think it was um, a minister that you have a relationship with just rather than give a sermon, read the scripture and then just kind of threw it out to the congregation and said, let's talk about this <clears throat> with the um this the parable of of the seed, the sower. The and sower. and yes, kind exactly. of I thought of that as you were describing how the early church was and and how, you know, when you said any question you ask, if it's defendable in that it's in the text it's a good question instead of looking at the bible as a book of answers it's it raises questions and then based on what you bring to the discussion would give answers and so it gives us a multiple a multitude of answers that we could choose from or at least you know if you can you go on about can you you know add a little bit to that that with that example from the book
1: yeah, amen. That, I mean, that's, that's what I believe. And so then the effect of, um, of that kind of engagement is that it brings people together and it builds community. We might not all come to some conclusion about what this text means, but we've ga- engaged in a process of interpretation that creates and builds community and connection and an ongoing conversation. I, I say in the book that it's not about the product, it's about the process when it comes to interpreting. And that's something that uh, the Jewish community and Jewish tradition has understood in the ways that it engages with scripture that I think Christianity really needs to learn from. My teacher, Walter Brueggemann, will say that Christianity needs to become more Jewish. And he doesn't mean that as like somehow superseding Judaism or anything, but to learn from those kinds of practices of engagement that are about process. They're about contradiction. They're about um, the noise of interpretation rather than about some final conclusion. I can say a little bit about that, that sermon too, if you want, um, that was at our last church in, in Cleveland Heights. John Lentz is, one of the, is the, one of the ministers there, and my wife is the associate pastor, was the associate pastor there. And he, we were doing worship not in the normal sanctuary, but in the fellowship hall during a certain time of the year and he just decided to try that just like okay i'm going to read it and then we're going to talk about it together and there were hundreds of people there and and i describe it in the book it was very lively the different things people were seeing did not all fit together into one interpretation which is you know the way the parables work they don't have a single interpretation um but kudos to to pastor lentz for being comfortable not being in control.
2: One of the nice things that you do uh, over halfway through the book is kind of provide a a simple context for people to to think about this. And you explain that how many people look at the Bible, um, they view it kind of as a rock, when in reality it's more closely like a river. So expand on this just a little bit and help us understand why some people might resist viewing the Bible as a river, even if they know that's probably how they should look at it. You talk about a couple of your students that you had had encounters with where intellectually they got it. And and I'm sure there's people listening to our program. We've got some very smart uh, audience members out there who I'm sure get it, but they can still feel that internal resistance to to making that mind uh, shift, even though they know it might be the truth.
1: Yeah. Well, I can sympathize with that. I, I know um, from my own experience, that kind of uh, a process of letting letting go of that rock and, and heading downstream in some ways, letting go of control. Um, I Partly what I mean by that is if there's any constant in the history of the Bible, it's change. And we can see in the Bible itself, the ways it sort of moves like a river. It doesn't all all the parts don't agree with one another. You can see a process and a movement of change within the banks. So there's, you know, there's some range of limit to how much change could happen, but it's changing all along. Um, and um, that just makes sense to me. I first thought about the rock versus the river metaphor. When I had an encounter with a student um, in one of my college classrooms, and I'd given my usual introduction on the first day of class, and part of what I do there is kind of, you know, flag for some students who might be concerned about it that we will be talking about things like contradictions in this material and the ways that it raises questions that are not easily answered. And she came over to my office afterward and said, I'm not going to be able to take your class right now. Um, I'm just not ready to think about that yet. She said, I know it's not a rock, but I need it to be my rock right now. Just because of all of the other chaos in my life, I need it to be that stable anchor for me. But I know it's not. And I'll come back and we'll, you know, engage it together later. And then a year later, she did an independent study with me where we worked through the same material. She's now a Presbyterian minister. Um, But I just thought it was so remarkable. I was so grateful to her for being able to be honest like that and to be able to kind of think on two levels at the same time, which I think is just amazing. But um, yeah, that's where that, that image came from. And in the book, I say, it's not a rock, but a river, and it's not a book of answers, but a library of questions. Tim
2: ends his book by sharing a brief roadmap of how we might adjust our mindsets to get more from the Bible. How do we accomplish this? And where is the Bible's place in modern society? That's what Lance and I will discuss in the next segment of today's show. Tim, we really enjoyed your book, and it is filled to the brim with content for contemplation. Thank you so very much for taking time to speak with Lance and me.
1: It was great talking with you guys. Thanks so much for, um, you know, really giving it a good, generous read. Um, I really appreciate it. This was fun. Thank you.
2: Timothy Beal is the author of The Rise and Fall of the Bible, which you can purchase by visiting thestateofus.org or anywhere books are found. What's the roadmap to a better understanding of the Bible look like? How do we accomplish this? And where is the Bible's place in modern society? To find out, keep it here on The State of Us and we'll be right back.
4: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW group. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.
2: We are the state of us. Here's your host, Justin T. Weller. The good book. The book of books or as many of us know it the bible that's what we've been talking about today we had the great privilege of getting to speak with Timothy Beal who is the author of at least 11 books and has published even more than that uh edited and so forth and uh and what a pleasure it was Lance and I really enjoyed that that opportunity to speak with him and I know we both felt like uh there just wasn't enough time we could have done two or three shows probably uh, but I know we both thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, what we want to talk about in in the spirit of the state of us, right, is uh, some action items from here. you're You're listening uh, to the first two segments of the program. We've arrived here, and you're like, okay, guys, so so what do I do now? where Where do I go from here? I, i'm I'm maybe buying into this uh, this idea, right? the The Bible is more of a river than it is a rock. So, so what's next? Um, Well, it's different for everybody. Obviously, it's probably pretty different um, regarding whether or not you already come from a religious background or not. Uh, But I think in in both cases, there are options that can be of interest for everybody. And Lance, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to share a couple of things that I've done in my exploration of the word as we know it. Um, and, and then you can just kind of react. And, and if you've got something to add, please, please add it. Yeah. I've got, I've got one thing to to
3: tell people no matter where they are in their journey of, of faith or not having one. So I, but I've got one thing I'd like to share. Okay. Um, well, you want to go ahead? Do just wanna, very sim- Go ahead. Yeah, I will. If you don't mind, just, um, don't mean to butt in, but yeah, very simply, I think the thing to do for me anyway, not telling anybody else what to do is whether you've been reading the Bible or you used to read it or you've never read it to pick one up and read it as, as it says in in the book, don't look for it to give you answers to things, but look for the questions and ask the questions and, and then kind of just under, you know, understand it and, and come at it from that aspect. Not that it's, going to tell you everything to do, but it will help you ask the right questions to lead you to what the answer is for you and what you need to do and what's going to make you feel better and um, have that spiritual journey that will satisfy you. And I think that's the biggest thing is, is just grab a Bible and read it from that perspective. Don't read it looking for, well, what's the answer to blank? Read it and see what it opens up to you. Let your mind take the word and just go with it. So that's that's what I would offer up. So what what, it, what are what are your choices here?
2: Well, I, you know that I'm I'm on a very similar page to you, Lance. I think it's too often that we think we know what we should get, you know, or what we want it to be versus what it is. Um, and I think those are those are really important things to understand because to me, so much of what we talked about in the first two segments uh, doesn't do anything to invalidate um, the Bible. I think it's uh, it should make your connection and understanding deeper. And hopefully you get more out of it if you take this approach. Um, that would be the ultimate goal for everybody, no matter what book you're reading, whether it's the Bible or something else. Um don't read the book for what you think the book is read the book for what it actually is uh and see what you come away with after you've approached it with an open mind it's it's honestly pretty similar to i I hope what Lance and I try to do on most of these episodes is try to um have these conversations and and see where they take us um so a- along that same Line of thought, I think one of the important things for people is you can you can really do this with any Bible. um but if I may be so bold as to make a couple recommendations for people, I would try, and this becomes increasingly hard as we've talked about the Bible publishing industry, try to select a Bible that has limited or no quote, value added stuff that'd be sidebars, commentary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It isn't that this stuff is worthless, but it is to say that if you're just beginning this process of getting your interpretation of it and reading it for what it is um, and and examining the questions that it poses, I think it can be helpful if you're not inundated with what other people think, uh, because that's part of that's part of what happens and that's part of how we got to where we are, this idea that what I'm reading and what I think it says versus what people are telling me it says don't match up. So then I think I'm doing something wrong. Um, right. They know more than I do.
3: So if you don't have that there, then you don't go into it again, like you said at the start of this, with any preconceived notions. Just get one that's the word that you can understand and because you know, it doesn't do any good to get one with language that you don't understand. So, but I but don't get one that is going to tell you what you should be getting out of this reading. Just get it and start reading it. Yeah, I like that.
2: The other thing, and this is a this is a personal, um, I, I guess all of this is because it's an opinion item. Um, the other thing that I would recommend is trying to select um and, and it doesn't have to be either of my recommendations, but trying to select a um a translation that is based on um, formal equivalence, which is basically just the principle of word for word translation. Um, now you can find modern English versions of these. Some people think when we say that, oh, we're talking King James, and I, you know, that's there's no way that's going to be terrible to read. It's going to be boring, or I'm not going to be able to understand it. That's not necessarily what that means. One of the good, more recent ones is NASB, which is the New American Standard Bible um it's based on formal equivalence and it's probably the closest modern english translation you can get that doesn't use either a hybrid translation model or doesn't use what we call what some people call dynamic or functional equivalence which is thought for thought basic difference here is we read a passage and we translate each word literally in the first uh in the first one we posed, or in this second one that we're talking about here, dynamic slash functional equivalence, we read a passage and then we translate it to communicate what we think it's saying. Um, And that's a, you know, doesn't always ruin things, doesn't always change things, but it can. So again, if you're beginning this exploration, it's not that you can't just do this with any, any old Bible, but you do a couple of these things, maybe avoid some of the commentary and value added stuff and you choose a translation that's more literal while still in modern English, those are probably going to help you uh, approach it this way in a, in perhaps a less preconceived notion of what you should find. Very good. So they've got some options. We have two or three different things. Yep. Two or three different things. Um, Everything that we talked about today, if you all want to read, and and I think Lance and I give our our full uh, heartfelt recommendation to the rise and fall of the Bible um, as the first thing that you should read. And then maybe after you've read that, and ongoing imagination, which is a more recent uh, publication. both of those are are excellent, and they build on what we've talked about uh today with timothy Beal and what lance and i have discussed so lance we talked about as always part of making this happen and part of what we're trying to do right is bring more people into the fold uh to share this mission of what we're trying to accomplish here on the state of us
3: and our mission is to educate people by providing
2: honest open and respectful conversations and if people want to invite others to tune into the podcast version released on tuesdays and thursdays how might they do that lance
3: well, we you can find us on uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else fine podcasts are found.
2: stateofus.org has all those resources. You can also purchase copies of today's books through there on Amazon or anywhere else uh, books are found. For The State of Us on True Chat in Urbana, Ohio, I'm Justin T. Weller. And I'm Lance Jackson. Special thanks to our guest, Timothy Beal, and to our producer, Bradley Butch. And of course, thank you all for taking time to tune in to today's conversation. We'll see you next time. Be the change. Be sure to check out our website, thestateofus.org, for books, articles, and all the ways to tune in, thestateofus.org.